Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I am here with Liam Callanan, a novelist, teacher, and journalist. Liam's novel, Paris by the Book, a national bestseller, was translated into multiple languages and won the 2019 Edna Ferber Prize. He is also the 2017 winner of the Hunt Prize, and his first novel, The Cloud Atlas, was a finalist for an Edgar Award. Liam's work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Slate, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the San Francisco Chronicle, and he's recorded numerous essays for public radio. Liam has taught for the Warren Wilson MFA program for writers, Bread Loaf Writers Conference, and currently is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he lives with his wife and daughters. His most recent novel, When in Rome, will be published by Penguin Random House in March 2023. Liam, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you so much. It's such a delight to be here. Yeah, <laughs> I know this is so fun and exciting for me because uh, you've we've been pals for a couple years, a while. I don't know. It's, it's been fun to get to know you more deeply over the years. And there's like so much that I've learned from you through our friendship. And you're just a really gifted writer and teacher and a devoted Catholic. So <laughs> let's get into the mess. Thank you so much. It's great to be in the mess, and uh, I'm excited. I don't know if it's been a couple years or 20. I knew, you know, like, it was a couple years, but we went deep really fast. Yeah. So I feel like we've lived a lifetime in the short amount of time that we've known each other. You're a novelist. All your novels are amazing. You're obviously award-winning and accomplished and doing great with that vocation, but that's not all you are and all you do. You're also a dad and a husband and a teacher, really devoted to your students. You lead the MFA program at UW-Milwaukee, is that correct? We actually have a PhD program in creative writing, so PhD MA, and I do lead the program here and the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Go Panthers! We always welcome people inquiring <laughs> about our program. And then I also teach in other programs from time to time, but um, Milwaukee is my home base. Great city. <laughs> love love coming uh, up the Oh, uh, we too. love it. I make the argument that there would be no 20th or 21st century literature without Milwaukee because this is where the typewriter was invented. <sighs> And so that QWERTY keyboard that you're looking at right now or that I'm looking at, I have a fifth floor office. I can actually see the location where the first typewriter was made. So it's good bones in Milwaukee. <laughs> That's great. The world just needs to pay attention. <laughs> and it will. It will. I know it will. Yeah. So really, though, you're a mix of these vocations or, yeah, mix of identities, right? Dad, father, teacher, writer. What's shaped these identities and helped you to know who you really are and meant to be for the world? That's a really, really good question. And I think this is something I've only figured out recently, bizarrely, because I've been on the planet for a little while now. <laughs> and uh, I should have come to this earlier, but understanding that the different vocations that I have are vocations it's been such a discovery for me. The idea that one is called to the work and one is called to the life and one is called to service. I mean, I the Jesuits were very helpful with me when I was at Loyola High School in Los Angeles years ago, talking about Father Rupe's dictum about being men for others or people for others. And while I knew that, I didn't know it in kind of my heart until I became a dad and I really understood that this wasn't something that just happens to you biologically. It's something that you're called to be and you're called to serve and you're called to be here, be present for others. And starting from that, it grew into the rest of my life as well. Like the teaching that I do 
it's enjoyable. It's also hard sometimes. Mm. And uh, students are wonderful. And then they also have problems that they want solved. And those are challenges to solve as well. I realized whenever I had a frustrating day at work, and it's like, well, you know, I'm making a salary. And so that pays for it. it like, it really doesn't. Mm. You know, money doesn't compensate for the work that you do. Understanding that you're called to do something and be something and be present and be a witness for others. That's that's what pays you back. Oh, I hate even using that kind of commercial term pays you back. That's what restores me. Mm. I love that you just used the word vocation because vocation for me increasingly is the only way that life makes sense. So what is call and like, how do you know when you're called to something? That's such a good question. I once, before the days of cell phones, we used to have a phone in our house, which I had gotten free for subscribing to Sports Illustrated. It was like a cheap little plastic phone. And so <laughs> this was the 90s or something. This was the 90s when you got a free phone. I don't know if it was like a football shaped phone or like, and I was, you know, I was saving my money. I worked at Catholic Charities at the time. So I didn't have a lot of money to spend on frivolous things like phones. So I was signed up for this free phone and it was just awful. Part of it, like you could barely hear anyone when you talk to them. But the other funny function of the phone was, Every now and then it would just ring for no apparent reason. It would just ring once and then you'd pick it up and no one would be there. And so it became the expression <laughs> in our household like, oh, it's Jesus calling uh, because that just became our go-to. And, you know, I feel like sometimes yeah. it's a funny story, but in some ways it, it has some meaning to it too. We really do need to listen. So I understand call to mean an active listening. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you pick up the phone and it really doesn't sound like anyone's there, Mm. then it turns out you're listening for the wrong thing or maybe you're on the wrong phone. And I'm not sure if Jesus was going to call, he would have called me on a Sports Illustrated football phone. (laughs) But nevertheless, like more seriously, just kind of being present, present in the pew, present in life, present just walking down the street. Those are all things I've tried to get aware of uh, or be a little bit more in mind of. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if there's something that runs through my work, it is this notion of of listening. Like I even have a book of stories called Listen. They all refer to different acts of listening. And this is just me on the fly. And I don't think you should ever trust an author speaking critically about their own work or thoughtfully like, but the theory of my work is (laughs) because the readers complete a text, readers know what it's all about. But the act of listening for me is very powerful one and one I've tried to be more present in. Is that contemplation that you're describing? My friend, I think it is contemplation that I'm describing. And we talked offline about this earlier, but I'm very moved by the experience of my great uncle or cousin, I'm not exactly sure, Morris Shine, who later became a monk down in Gethsemane, Kentucky. And he overlapped with Thomas Merton for a while. He was the oldest Trappist monk in the world. Although I only saw him on a couple of occasions, and in part because that's the rhythm of life down there. Their families aren't allowed to drop in all the time. But every now and then, my family would have a reunion at this little motel the monks owned across the street from the abbey for people to visit. You know, and I would get up maybe for matins or the the first uh, prayer service of the day. And I just moved. They would all file in kind of quietly as the sun rose around us. And we'd start in the dark. And the act of listening became so important. And it was so different from what I thought. Like, I thought, who's looking at me? Who's seeing me? Who's speaking? Who's singing? But more powerful than that, and this is me reflecting now, thinking back, is like, who was I listening to? Was I really listening to him, you know, when I got to speak? Uh, was I listening to the monks? Was I listening to the reading of the day? Mm-hmm. I think that's so challenging. It's so embarrassing to think of how many times I've sat in a pew 
And I couldn't tell you the reading that just happened because my mind is a million other places and because it took me that long to arrive at Mass, which is such a challenge. Mm. Luckily, this isn't being recorded, so no one knows that I wasn't paying attention during the gospel. But, uh, <laughs> oh, it is. We'll just, <laughs> oh, it is? Oh, well, yeah, totally remember. He wanted to baptize you. Yep. <laughs> So, you know, what I think you're describing there, though, is something very real and probably relatable to most of us is how if we're really listening deeply to the presence of the divine, to Christ, to the spirit, it's a certain type of listening. You know, it's a different channel that we tune into. It's a different type of attention. And it requires a certain receptivity. Mm-hmm. My experience, Liam, I don't know if this is yours, but I feel like there's these layers of fuzz and static that God has yes. to get through. I think yes. what you're talking about, you can go to church and not actually be paying attention to the readings, mm-hmm. but you realize you're thinking about your grocery list. Mm-hmm. Even noticing that you weren't yes. tuning, like that in itself is a certain level of noticing. It is. And listening, right? And so... As humans who are creative and wanting to serve God and God's people, like how do we respond and receive the messages through all the layers of static and life? And and yet the call comes through. I've heard you say, you know, in previous conversations, you know that your vocation is to be a teacher and a writer. But how did you arrive to that? That's a really good question. And I think if I can just back up and talk about God getting through the fuzz and the static just for a moment. One thing that helps me understand it is the little contextualization of community. And it's being around other people. And that's why I'm so excited that, you know, masses are in person again, because there's something about, not something, there's everything about being in space with other people. Because even if you are thinking maybe about your grocery list or something more important, like someone's really sick or you're worried about money that week, but you're then you're seeing other people lift up their voices and their hearts to God. And that's a powerful expression of community. And I think that's something that kind of carries me through all the work that I do. So, I mean, when I saw uh, brother Kevin was his name, my uh, cousin who is the monk down at Gethsemane, seeing them come together in community. In my most recent book, When in Rome, when I'm writing about that community come together, it's by seeing themselves and each other in that space, they're brought together in that way. And I think that's part of what is so moving for me. So to then fast forward, I'm leaping around in time, but to your question about how I came to understand that call, I think it's something I'm still coming to understand. I think one of the things that made me realize that... I had a vocation as a writer and a teacher and a husband and father was the importance of storytelling in my life and how stories helped me organize the world. And it was certainly the way I understood my faith, because that's how we experience it, particularly as children. But the idea of stories is connection. I feel like we tell each other stories to understand the world. And I feel like I understand the world by hearing other people's stories. My students have, are probably sick of me saying this, but I always feel like stories teach us how to read them in their first paragraphs. Mm. And then I have a colleague who says, a story teaches us how to read it in the beginning. The end of a story teaches us how to read the world. And I would say that by putting yourself in someone else's imaginary space and kind of seeing the world through their eyes, you can make a connection. And that's a form of community too. And that's honestly something I'm still coming to understand, still coming to understand because it's so powerful and stories in the wrong hands, of course, can be very destructive, but I'm, 
luckily not in my students' hands, but it's such a powerful act of communication. Meeting someone and saying, how are you doing? They'll say like, oh, fine. But if I say like, could you write me a story? Then I'm going to get something much richer, even if they're writing about a flying carpet ride, or if especially if they're writing about a flying carpet ride. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up storytelling because that's really where I wanted to, I was hoping we would go in this conversation. Oh, good. Some years ago, early on in my life in community with the sisters, I was in conversation with one of them about, we keep having to do these public talks because of our identity as sisters. People ask us to speak. How do we get people's attention quickly and not bore them to death? <laughs> and <laughs> Especially because, you know, so many of my sisters are, phenomenally brilliant right they they could tell you like about medieval theologians like at the drop of a hat the thing that one of the sisters said to me that was super impactful in that conversation was that if we start with the story it engages the heart and then we can mm. follow that with information that then engages the mind. But we mm. want to engage people's hearts first. And that was so helpful for me because I was teaching high school religion at the time. And I started thinking about faith formation and how do we bring people into the faith and help them to know the story of Jesus. And how do we help invite people into the story of relationship with Jesus, this journey of discipleship. And I realized that storytelling is the only way that we can navigate through that. And so I started to invite my students to tell a story about a time where you got to know who you truly are as a person and how you experience God's love in that moment. You know, things like this that would invite reflective thinking skills too. That's just my own musings about the power of storytelling, but I don't write fiction. You teach storytelling, you work in story, and I'm curious about how you can get creative in the storytelling and resist the boxes that we mm. love to put characters and people and even the authors into. I know, for example, that one of the things you hate is talking about politics, and I kind of hate <laughs> it now too. And, <laughs> and yet both of us are living this public identity of Catholic yes. writer, right? right? So people right. like have all these assumptions about us because we're Catholic writers. Oh, do they ever? Yeah. So how do we like tell the story of who we are or let our work tell the story of what it is and let the boxes of and categories that people want to clump us into collapse around us, Liam? I have a perfect answer for that. <laughs> no, I don't. One thing I want to say is that readers complete a text. And so storytelling is a collaborative activity. Mm. And uh, it goes back to that active listening. I always know that you know, whenever you're telling a story in a room, actually like live telling a story in a room, some people, and I, we were just talking about this a moment ago, some people are not tuned in. And so some people are not completing the text or they have such walls up that they're completing the text in their own terms. So like, I understand you to be this way, you present as this way. And so that's how I'm going to filter everything through. And so the challenge is to uh, reach through that static or, or reach out of that box and say, come, come join me in here or show me where you are and I, let's find a space there or even better, let's find a third space where we can meet and talk. And I feel like earnestness is this, um, sincerity is a is a dull coin these days, but I'm all for it. <laughs> I like when students say like, I, I when someone sits down and I want to say like, really, how are you doing? And sometimes students are like, ah, I don't want to talk about that, which is fine. But when I say like, this story is really interesting, and I want to know if I heard it correctly. And so frequently, 
when we're talking about a story in class, I'll say something like, are we talking about the same story you wrote? And everyone laughs a little bit. But then sometimes the student will say, well, well, actually, no, I'd understood it to be this. I've had the same experience with my own writing. Someone will read it in a certain way, and I'll think, wow, that is powerfully not what I was thinking about. Some writers, and this is a very healthy activity, just write those readers off and say, well, that person didn't get me, and that's fine. I still work on it. I still like, well, if there's only a certain way that I can kind of reach that person, because I really like meeting people where they are. And I think that's part of getting outside those boxes. And I think it's also kind of embodying it on our own is mm. being being the model of the person we want to be. Like, I don't know how many times I've told someone I'm from Milwaukee and they're like, oh, do you want a second beer? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. yes, Milwaukee's known for its beer. And yes, but there's there's also other things about it. We invented the typewriter here. And by the way, maybe I am thirsty. So like, bring it on. But <laughs> but in return, as opposed to saying someone like from Washington, D.C., if, if I meet them and say like, oh, you're probably going to want to talk about politics for the rest of the afternoon. They can say like, no, uh -huh. I really want to talk about your stories. Or I want to talk about my story or I want to talk about football shaped phones. I'm not sure. But just trying to be the person that I want others to be. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the way forward. But I'm I'm not sure. When people want to draw a box, sometimes it can be helpful to get out of that box. But there's no box that doesn't have an opening. You just have to unseal it. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> what I think is significant here is you're describing how the way to build relationship and to invite people into the story or the human experience or who we are as people or who we are as church is to really meet people where they are, right? And mm -hmm. to be receptive. Yes, so we, absolutely. we all have to move a little to go to where the other person is. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm challenged as I think about this, like, okay, I need to stop judging people and subjecting them to my preferences and saying like, no, if you want to talk to me, come over here, do this thing for me that I like. Absolutely. This is a perhaps silly comparison, but it means a lot to me. Like for many years, I was encountering in uh, writing classes, particularly after Harry Potter, a lot of speculative fiction and magic and elves. It's just not my thing. I'm not very well read in that area, and I'm not particularly up to date on how you write elves. And so I had a rule in the class, which was no pets, no pot, no dreams, no death. <laughs> and then one day a student wrote a story that had all those things in it, and it was absolutely brilliant. It was like about a dog who drove an RV to Alaska, and I loved it. And I realized <laughs> I need to be present to the brilliance on the page that's there, and not because of the rules. So if a student wants to write about pets or elves or things like that, then I need to sit down and hear their story. For me, treating it as like a lesser type of fiction or a lesser type of story, just because I don't recognize it. Well, that's wrong. Mm. That's not to say that a story with elves might not have structural challenges that I need to kind of help a student talk about, or that the dog driving to Alaska maybe could drive something other than an RV. Now I'm getting lost in the details of my <laughs> own story. But I think what I'm saying is hearing people where they come from is really important. So now I, I don't have rules in my class. I mean, I have some basic rules about just kind of being respectful of each other, but I don't prescribe because I don't know where the next brilliant thing's going to come from. Mm. I, I never do. It's a, it allows me to be a more powerful witness, and I hope a more empathetic witness to what they're trying to talk about, and then helps me kind of learn a little bit more as well. But it's always a challenge. Yeah. It is always a challenge because you never exactly know where people come from. Like I remember a reviewer read my first book and said, well, this is based on the third chapter of Genesis. And I was like, oh, dear. I mean, I had to flip through my Bible to kind of like, what was the third chapter about? And that was definitely not my intention with that. But that's what he took from it. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, great. Mm. That's what you're doing. So 
it's a challenge, but I think it's, again, it starts with listening community and oh. letting people communicate with you in the way that they can. If I can help them communicate better, more clearly, more powerfully, more sensitively, respectfully, then I'm, I'm absolutely up for that. What you're describing, I know you're talking about what happens in your classroom and how you're teaching people to be good storytellers and writers. However, I feel like it's totally parallel to living in a faith community, right? So how do we build relationship and remain open to the other and allow people to be who they are and share what they want to share and also offer the truth of who we are? So I'm wondering if you just want to say a bit about how your creative work overlaps with your life of faith. That's a really good question. And I have a quick story and clearly God wanted me to tell the story on the podcast because he arranged for it to happen this way because just this last Sunday, I was in church, St. Peter and Paul here in Milwaukee, and the celebrant, Father Tim, said something like, turn to the person next to you and welcome them or exchange a story with them or something. And of course, you know, we all were like, oh, no, <laughs> one of those messes. Like, it's early in the morning. We just want to kind of sit there and receive, but receive quietly. We don't want to interact. This young man was next to me. And... At the end of Mass, he, he thanked me, he turned to me and he said, what's this community like? Because I grew up with the Latin Mass and I still like a good Latin Mass. Hmm. And I have to admit, I tensed up a little bit because I'm not a Latin Mass goer. I, I respect that tradition, but it's just not where I am in my faith life. And to my discredit, I thought like, oh, Latin Mass, he's not here for what I think he should be here for. But then I thought, no, 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 wait. No, I've been asked to be kind of a welcoming person. So he said, well, I like this church. I said, I'm not sure, but you should come back. And I said, welcome. Hmm. And I realized that was the word I was supposed to say, welcome. And he gave me the biggest smile. And he said, thank you. Hmm. It was so wonderful to be here with you this morning. I was like, yes, it was. I feel like that's an act of listening. I was clearly presented with something where I was like, oh, I put you in a box. Yeah, I put you in the Latin mass box. And said the box that could find a place for both of us was the box that read, welcome, open that box up, get inside. And so I, I was very glad that that was, space was made for me, but, but it took me a bit. And I remember that like listening is not a passive act. It's a very active act. And in church, in relationship, in communication, community, but also in creative work, certain things have to live a life of their own, don't they? And we have to relinquish control. We can't control how the reader receives what we write. Right. We can't control how the person in the pew receives our greeting, actually. No, we can't. So what is that like for you? Sometimes it's a challenge, especially, you know, sometimes I'll be at a public event and someone will have a question which they really want to talk about their thing. There's a challenge between kind of redirecting the conversation and kind of letting them have their say. Part of me wants to run around with every copy of the book in a red pen and say, like, I need to fix it just for you so you'll get it. But then I realize that's actually not how books work. And this is very soothing for a writer, but maybe it's self-satisfying uh, in some sort of way. But I remember a writer said, like, the last thing you want is everyone to like your stuff. Hmm. because that means you've written too wide a target and you haven't been sharp or focused enough in what you're trying to say. Yeah. What you want is to really get some people to like it. All the people liking it, that means you found too much of a kind of muddled middle. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't mind everyone in the world buying a copy of that. would be great. But I do get the point that what you really want to do is reach one or two particular people. And sometimes that's enough. Mm. You know, sometimes that's enough. Like to really find a reader 
who gets you and understands you and reads you. I, I just met someone a couple of weeks ago who was like, oh my gosh, I really love Paris by the book. And I was like, thank you. Because I've been thinking like, oh, I should have done this with that book or should have done that. And I realized like, no, I've connected with that person. So that's great. Mm. So as long as I reach one person, then it's good, which maybe sounds like too low a bar, but I've realized that's what it's all about. I mean, it seems to be working. You're doing great, right? Oh, well, we'll see. You know, but yeah, it's just all, it's again, like I go back to it. I'm really figuring this out on the fly, but yeah. like, it's all about sitting in the pew and turning to the person next to you and saying, welcome. Mm. And not saying, oh, you're going to understand this in a different way. So mm-hmm. that's a very kind of powerful act of witness for me. Mm. Did I even answer the question? No, but you're giving good stuff to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about When in Rome right now. <laughs> I'd love to talk about When in Rome. When in Rome is the story of a woman in her 50s. She's a realtor and she specializes in selling old decommissioned religious properties. And some American nuns in Rome need some help selling their building. And so she goes over to see them in Rome and in the process falls in love with the building, Rome, and most significantly, the life that the women are leading. And so she thinks that she actually may want to investigate taking vows. And right about then, her old college flame shows up. So there is a debate and a dilemma. So on the one hand, it's about kind of finding your way in midlife. But on the other hand, it's about everything that we've talked about so far. To me, it's any case. It's about community. It's about finding a path that's about really listening to your call and what your vocation might be. And I won't spoil it for readers to kind of tip our hand about what she chooses, but it is a choice. At one point, one of the sisters in the book reminds her that, that choosing is an active activity. Choosing is not a passive activity. And one thing that my character has been doing throughout her life is kind of moving passively from one thing to another, just because it's there. And this, for the first time in her life, she's really called upon to kind of make a choice and it's a defining one. And so that for me was was fascinating. And it really got me thinking about community and what vocation and vows and, and all those things come to the fore. When I was in high school, I tried to figure out if I was discerning a call myself. Like I, I wasn't I wasn't sure. And I came to understand over time that I was called to be a husband and father. I do like hearing myself talk and tell stories. And I was worried that <laughs> perhaps I was <laughs> interested in a vocation because I wanted to be up at the front of an audience every week. And I realized you're not called to be a, you know, on-call comedian for a parish. You you may be called to tell your stories in other ways. This book gave me a chance to reflect on that Mm. and reflect on it in a beautiful place, which of course is Rome, Italy, where Mm. I've been many times. And I got to bring my daughters along with me at various times too. That was very powerful. And it kind of reminded me of my vocation as a dad. You know, one story that I don't tell too much, but this is a very sacred space on your podcast. So I feel comfortable telling it here was that we we lost our first child shortly before she was born. Her name was Lucy, which is a name we decided upon before I realized that she's the patron saint of writers or authors. Some people say St. Francis de Sales. I think St. Lucy can share it. She was our first child. And I remember thinking life is going to be very different from when I thought it was going to be. And I thought, That's a gift, but it's a terrible one. And the story I told myself at the time, and it's a bizarre story to have told myself, was like that I had failed as a dad somehow, Mm. like that her loss was somehow my part, my fault. And that was a very powerful story that I had to kind of undo myself from. And I realized part of acting, being a good witness to others is being a good witness to yourself. But it absolutely made me treasure 
being a dad when my next three daughters came along. We've had all daughters, which has been a constant blessing in my life and just made me treasure every moment. Every time they woke up with vomit all over them and we had to do the sheets, every time they scored a goal in basketball or every time they hit the net in volleyball, that I was going to be present there for that because every moment was precious. And I had been given the gift of understanding that earlier on. I mean, we often say like we would never have wished for that outcome. We would never have wished to lose Lucy. But if we had the choice between a life with her in it, briefly as she was in a life without her, we would absolutely choose a former. To have had the gift of that short, brief life is such a powerful one. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious if you have any thoughts to share about how suffering forms us as humans and maybe how suffering has formed you in your work. I think that's a really good question. I need to I need to breathe with that for a moment. I think that I think suffering has formed me in the sense it early on when we lost Lucy, I wanted the world to hurt as much as we did, which is a terribly vain thing to say, but but it was true at the time. Like something so terrible had happened. It was like a personal apocalypse. And for me, it was the end of the world. And I didn't understand why the rest of the world was going on like nothing had happened. But of course it did, because people didn't know. And I thought the suffering was all mine. And then as I grew older and I understood life a little bit better, I understood that suffering is certainly not unique to any one of us. In fact, it's the most common of all experiences, not in an equitable way. So many of our brothers and sisters suffer in much more profound ways just for the acts of daily life. That said, it's part of life. It's not something to be wished away. I think one thing that, not to blame schooling, and I'm a teacher, so I shouldn't blame schooling, but one thing about school that they teach you is if you do everything right, you get an A. That turns out not to be a really great lesson for life. If you do everything right in life, that doesn't mean you get an A. It doesn't mean you kind of avoid the wounds. The point of life is to live it, not win it. And I think that once I understood, again, that suffering was going to come to us and touch us all in different ways, then I became a better brother and sister myself, a better person in the pew, but also just a better person in my own life. Mm -hmm. So I think suffering as witness is powerful. And again, I can't emphasize enough the inequity of it. I don't want to like even to say like that I've suffered in any particular way. I've been a human along with other humans, and I've been so, so inordinately blessed you know, to have the daughters that I have, to have the beautiful and loving wife that I have, to be able to talk on the Zoom with you right now. It's a blessing to have lived through this time, but to know suffering to the degree we can, it's not something to be avoided because it's impossible to avoid. And it's not something to embrace like I need it, but it's something to recognize as part of us. Well, this is the direct connection to Jesus, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that's that's a powerful gospel reminder of where we need to sit. But boy, is it hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just want to I just want to point out the obvious right there. I'm not sure if everyone listening to where that it's super hard. <laughs> right. But I think I don't know, Liam, if this is true for you, but I can say for myself, the texture of Christ on the cross is a comfort because mm. when I'm going through my day and I'm frustrated and angry or hurting or in pain or, you know, dealing with body aches or mm. grumpy people or whatever is right. <laughs> my suffering of the day. Somehow, if I just lean into Christ and, and consider him on the cross, there's this message of Jesus gets it. <laughs> like, Totally oh, yeah. gets 
it all and is actually with me in it all. And that invites me to a depth and a compassion for it all and myself Mm -hmm. in the moments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, just remembering that is the challenge. It's very easy for me to say, nobody understands. Like, this is really hard for me right now. What I'm doing physically, where I am on my journey, especially when that journey surprises us and the road ahead suddenly looks a lot steeper than it did before. It's very easy to think, well, and I am all alone on this road and to forget that not only Jesus is there, but all the people who came before us, they're there too. They're walking on that road and it's, it's a long walk, but we're not alone. And I I take comfort in that, but uh, yeah, I'm very human. I struggle to remember that a lot of times. Part of that welcome, I keep turning up to that word welcome before the idea that part of what you welcome is the suffering when that specter comes in. Not to resist it or say, like, this is terrible, but more to say, like, here I am. You're on my doorstep. You're coming inside. And I'm not going to put you in a box and say, like, I can't have that. Because the more we resist it, the bigger you make it. But you welcome it and just say, like, welcome. You're welcome to walk along with me suffering. You're not going to stop me. Mm. But you're welcome to accompany me because I'm going someplace important. Mm. Is that what discipleship is? I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with the discipleship is and being present to each other, whether you're on a Zoom call or sitting next to each other. If discipleship is welcoming suffering and walking with suffering and just not actually trying to win life, but live life, mm-hmm. and, and we're called to be and to give and to say yes to the calls, to the vocations that come our way, we're invited to receive the stories of others and tell the stories that we know. And all this is intertwined. Really, the act of life and serving and being is a creative act, I think, is what Mm -hmm. we're describing here. We are creatives, and we're made in the image of our creator. Mm -hmm. And so by being the creator's children, we create our lives and each other. Mm -hmm. So what is messy? Maybe we're talking all about it, but like, I just wonder if you want to sum it up somehow. That's what I I love about the show, the title, the ethos, the the whole thing. Like I, I use this so often in my own head, and I sometimes use it with other people. It's all about the mess. Like the mess is where we meet, and I bet those two words are related somehow. If you looked up the etymology, mess and meet, I'm not sure. I didn't. I haven't looked that up. But mm. to me, the mess is existence. When we're all born again on the last day, then the mess will fall behind. But until then, we're called to sort ourselves out through the mess that we're part of. You know, in some ways, Rome is an excellent metaphor or guide or image for this. It's such a beautiful city. It's gorgeous. You can't turn a corner and not be just dumbstruck by what you see there. You can't go into a church, even the tiniest church that you've never heard of before, and not be awestruck by what you see there. And it is also, as anyone who knows and loves Rome can tell you, it's a mess. (laughs) (laughs) There's graffiti everywhere. Trash pickup is not the best sometimes. Mm -hmm. The doors are sometimes locked to that church, but it doesn't make it any less glorious. It makes it Rome. Mm. And I don't think the mess of our life is what impedes our life. It's what makes it our life. Mm. And uh, that's that's what's such a beautiful reminder to me. It's also very comforting to think like, if my life was less messy, it would be better. There's certainly parts of my life 
that I could clean up, but I would never want to lose the mess because that would mean losing what it means to be human. As you described Rome, somehow I had an image of the sacred heart. Oh, yeah. And like, that's kind of a mess. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> it, yeah, There's oh, like yeah. flames and swords and thorns and blood dripping. <laughs> I think too, you know, the Pieta, when you go into St. Peter's, and it's right there on the right, yeah. and Mary holding Jesus. It's hard to describe that as a mess. I think it's the most beautiful piece of art in the world. So I wouldn't describe it as a mess. And yet it's an extremely messy thing, just like structurally. The two figures are not the right size. He's draped across her kind of awkwardly, but it's so gorgeous. And I mm. think that one of the things about that beauty is that or one of the reasons it's beautiful is because it is messy. It's not people kind of sitting, standing prim and proper and kind of gazing down on each other as so many statues are. It's when it's entangled with people and it's at eye level and you're right there with it. And um, I think it's, I think it's an extraordinary piece. It's, it's an extraordinarily messy piece of art. So are each of us. Amen. Oh, Liam, Amen. thank you so much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Oh, Sister Julie, this was the absolute hoot. <laughs> Before you go, I would love you to talk about how the listeners can find all your books and read all your work and support you and your ministries. Well, they can go to liamcallanan.com mm. uh, and they'll find links to all the upcoming events for the book and ways to order when in Rome and all the different places you can see me. And who knows, we have to figure out if we're going to do some event together in one of these time zones or another, but um, maybe we could do it in Rome. That would be a lot of fun. <laughs> okay. Yes. We're, we're seeking sponsors. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just going to come. I just have a feeling. I'm not sure how, but yeah, liamcallanan.com. That's where all the information is. Oh yeah. And congratulations on your new Thank book. Thank you so much. And thank you for your help with it. And thank you for helping me think this through today. You said welcome at the beginning of this call. You opened the door to me in a profound way, not just today, but previously. That's a special gift. I'm grateful for it. Oh, thank you, Liam. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.